Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden. Tonight's a show I've been looking forward to for some time. To anyone who's followed law, much less criminal law, in the San Francisco Bay Area, Tony Sarah needs no introduction. To defense attorneys, J. Tony Sarah is nothing short of a master. Stands out in regional and national media, much less local media, as an absolute living legend. To those familiar with such movies as True Believer, Where the Buffalo Roam, or Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, it's not hard to imagine that some of the characters that we've come to see over the years may have been based in large part on the living master, Tony Serra. Tonight, we're going to have a word with Tony Serra, an evening with him. And with that, Mr. Serra, welcome to your legal rights. Welcome to uh, uh, this conversation. And the reason that we uh, use the adjectives that you bestowed on me is that I'm probably the oldest, you know, active litigant uh, around. I'm uh, on, uh, eight, you know, at this stage, I'm 88, and I'm still doing, you know, jury trials, murder cases, all kinds of criminal cases. So um, I'm happy to talk about it and happy to still be alive doing that. It's not just that you're alive at 88. It's that you're still on top of your game and still in the game and still a force to be reckoned with to this day. Of course, ladies and gentlemen, our most important guest tonight is you. We would like to invite you to participate in our conversation. Give us a call at 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. We want you to be part of the conversation. You don't have to jump at the moment that we're in in the conversation. We just want you to come and be part of it. If you have a question, whether it's about past cases, whether it's about the legal process in general, you have questions about criminal law. You don't have to jump exactly where we are in our conversation, but do understand a physician won't diagnose you or your family member based on a phone call. Neither Mr. Sarah nor myself can diagnose your legal problem with a phone call. We can tell you a lot about what the law is, about what our suggestions might be, but we can't give precise legal advice. We don't have all the facts involved in your case, but do give us a call. We're here to help. We're happy to give you the best information we can to help guide you. And again, our number is 866 798 8255. When we were speaking before uh, tonight's show, you told me about a few of the things that were um, that were really pressing you. We also spoke a little bit about uh, how the practice of law has changed a bit between then and now. You've been doing this for quite some time. Can you give us an idea? How long have you been practicing, whether it's for the defense or prosecution? Uh, approximately uh, 62 years. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. You've litigated some cases we've watched over the years. And when I say we, I don't mean as defense attorneys. I mean, long before some of us that are practicing were practicing, 
um, long before I really was following your career, but in the media, we, you've had some really prominent cases. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of those? Well, I, I started out uh, in the uh, active days of Haight-Ashbury, so I uh, represented uh, countless, you know, people from all over the country who came to the Haight, and from the perspective of law enforcement, uh, you know, committed uh, offenses. So uh, in essence, uh, I was like a pro bono public defender. I, you know, the... They would bring people in. Oh, do you want the public defender? No, we want Tony Serra. So I, I did, you know, countless cases. Uh, in that era, I represented the uh, Black Panthers and the White Panthers. I represented uh, the uh, Sibonese, you know, SLA. I represented the uh, the uh, New World Liberation Front. Uh, mo- most all of the political entities, some of whom direct actions, which means bombing. Others, you know, uh, did it through uh, demonstrations or other forms of propaganda. So uh, I, I started out strong. I was in court, you know, every day. I represented hundreds of people. I learned quickly, you know, the arts of uh, trial and the arts of uh, getting bail. Uh, this was all in San Francisco and then after that, I, I started trying cases all over. Uh, I probably have been in more uh, jurisdictions throughout the United States than most trial lawyers. I, I'm forgetting, but the last count was uh, somewhere around 50 or 60 different jurisdictions. And that's the Deep South, and that is the East, and that is the Northwest, and that is Hawaii, and that is every, you know, county practically in California. So I've had a a very, uh, how would you call it, a a barrage of of trials, uh, and and, uh, I have a passion for it. And I try my best. You know, people ask, what do you do? And I say, I do my best to keep human beings out of steel cages. You know, that's what my calling is. So at any rate, I'm still at it. How has that process changed over the years? Well, in in those days, uh, understand that the Constitution is an evolving concept that is, you know, we're constantly extending it and redefining it. So uh, constitutional rights back when I started were alive. They were real. They were vital. They were enforced. Uh, Judges wanted to throw out cases. I uh, was telling you previously that, you know, nowadays prelims are a joke, preliminary hearings, and they can put in hearsay and, you know, that suffices. And no witnesses let the police officer get up there and read the reports to you. But in those days, there were witnesses and cases got thrown out and judges want to throw cases out. And if an officer was perjuring himself, the 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 uh, the judges, you know, called them on that. I can't find you credible, you know, that kind of concept. So it was, I've always called it, you know, the 60s, the golden uh, years of uh, criminal defense. 
The judges were not all from the DA's office. The judges were not all ruthlessly authoritative. Uh, the judges, you know, wanted to do justice. It was a different attitude. And uh, the lawyers, all the young lawyers, very idealistic, very, you know, uh, uncompromisingly uh, uh, for the people and for people's rights. You know, uh, we, my God, it was an era, I don't know whether I should say this, but where people, uh, LSD was still uh, legal in the earliest times. I think it became illegal around 90 or I'd strike that uh, around 70, uh, uh, you know, not before. So a bunch of us, I can remember this was so well. There was a guy in Sausalito, a, a, a great lawyer. And if he lost, uh, let's say we, we did a case together. Let's say we, we had a motion to suppress. Let's say we lost it. We would go to his house, we would drop acid, and we would talk about it. We would get stoned, and we would talk about it over and over again. You know, what did we do wrong? And so the influence of psychedelics, I think, fertilize the imagination, the creativity of the criminal bar in those days. So, uh, you know, I, I graduated from the, maybe call it the demonstrations and the, the, the drug uh, cases to uh, heavier kind of cases, mostly murder, big conspiracy, you know, federal uh, trials that uh, involved uh, the transportation of uh, drugs or arms across state borders or uh, brought in smuggling Etc. Etc. I've had almost every type of case early in my career. Uh, I'm a father of, and I have five children. So early in my career, I said I don't want to take you know sex cases. I won't um, have my whole heart in it. And I come home and I, what did you do? Oh, I uh, cross-examined this fourteen-year-old uh, child who pretended she got. I don't want to talk about that at dinner. And so uh, I, I, I have not uh, participated in either a sex, a child molest, a rape type uh, cases, but everything else I've done, everything else, you know, uh, I've done robberies and burglaries. I've done, you know, uh, grand theft. I've done murder. I've done manslaughter. Uh, uh, it goes on and on. Because, you know, I, I um, have been practicing uh, all this time what I'll call relentlessly. And what I was best known at always is going back to back. One, finish one jury trial, go right to the next one, you know, while you're hot. And especially if you lose, you've got to get back in, in, into battle. If you lose, you've got to win the next battle. So... Um, I, I amassed a, a great number of uh, jury trials over the years, probably more than most uh, people. I've practiced in more jurisdictions than most people. I've had, you know, more confrontations with law enforcement than uh, most uh, lawyers. I'm known to be uh, radical, rebellious, you know, uh, uh, loud, uh, insulting, uh, um, uh, lots of different uh, types of uh, negative adjectives. 
One of the comments you made a bit earlier about judges wanting to throw things out brings to mind, in your opinion, have the courts, have the juries, have people in general taken a different perspective on the presumption of innocence? Do we still presume people to be innocent the way we once did? Now, that varies. Certainly not as strong the presumption of innocence and the people's burden to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt certainly was, I would say, stronger in the 60s and 70s, where now, you know, no, the jury, it's hard to get a fair jury. You go through Bordier and they'll look you in the face and they'll lie to you. They have difficulty in the concept of presumption of innocence. I always have to tell them that, please don't make your mind, you know, up off the opening statement. The statistics are that 60% of jurors make up their mind on the opening statement and then they listen to the evidence and make it, you know, support their preconception. And now that isn't presuming innocence. You see, that's presuming guilt. So, yes, uh, it's different now. Yes, it's more difficult to get a fair jury. Yes, the presumption of innocence has been watered down, you know, to uh, a paltry few words. We the defense lawyers, oh boy, we'll, we'll argue. We all have our presumption of innocence argument and the, the burden being on the prosecution and telling the jury ultimately, you know, it's not maybe or it's not, you know, possibly it's not, you know, uh, preponderance of the evidence. It's not probability. It's not clear and convincing. It's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, the highest standard, you know, known to our legal system. And I think, you know, some of them kind of open up and some don't. It depends on really on other factors, how bad the case is. Did you put the client on the stand? My God, you know, nowadays, don't most trial lawyers don't put their client on the stand they're afraid one way or the other maybe some bad shit will come out you know from prior uh conduct maybe you know they'll say something that will be uh self you know incriminating but i i always try to put the client on the stand and you know i uh try my best to show uh, through the testimony that there is reasonable doubt and they early should, you know, hold in abeyance their judgment until all of the evidence is in and the instructions are given. So um, most of our, the attorneys, you know, work reasonable doubt. Like you said at the Bordier, when you're selected in jury, secondly, I always, I always make an opening. You know, it's the only time you, you can talk after the DA. You know, and I have them objecting half of the time, you know, uh, but I, I, I'm vigorous in my openings and I'm trying to get the jurors, you know, to make up their mind off the off of the opening like they normally do when the prosecution is the only one who gives an opening. And the, the, the defense lawyer says, 
oh, we waive it or says, oh, I defer it, you know, to when we start our case, a defense case, you can then do your opening. But my God, by that time, the jury is already persuaded one way or the other, you know, by a number of techniques. So um, it's a lot different than, you know, my early practice of law, sadly. There was a time that you said you took a vow of poverty. You didn't want to capitalize on the practice of law. Has that changed? No, that's absolutely correct. Uh, uh, It's probably more my nature. I've never valued money. I'm not materialistic. I don't value things. I don't value what money buys or what opportunities it makes for people. I, um, you know, believe that uh, the uh, idealistic way is to do it for the merits. It's called pro bono, for goodness sakes. And so I took a vow of poverty um, and uh, never, you know, to capitalize, as you said, on uh, my ability as an attorney so I uh, became the best pro bono lawyer uh, in the West, you know, and, and I've done an awful lot of uh, pro bono work uh, all over the country. A lot of times I will need cost money, like, well, man, you know, if I'm going to try this case in Chicago, I got to get there and I got to stay in a hotel. Do you think you could help me on that? You know, I'll go that far. And then normally when there's a paying case, I will take a modest fee, but I'll use that fee to uh, fund the non-paying cases, you know, so it goes right back into the system. So it is true. uh, I have nothing. I have no money in the bank. I don't have bonds. I don't have a fancy car. I don't, uh, uh, my apartment is $515 a month, you know, under rent control. So I, my expenses of life are very low. I, um, here, here's my lifestyle. I'll, I'll try case, you know, all day instead of running out to dinner, you know, while the defendant goes and has his food in a jail setting, you know, stale and cold. I um, normally have a can of sardines and uh, maybe uh, uh, some toast, a very small, modest meal that doesn't cost anything, practically. So my uh, costs in life are very few. And um, uh, I I guess part of the good karma of my life is that I've, I've served so many people, you know, willingly in hard cases uh pro bono you know uh, for no fee and uh i'm probably unique in that sense i wanted to put some time aside for some of the things that you explained to me that really offend you today in the practice of criminal law or just the way that criminal cases are conducted the first one was about grand juries Tell us a little bit about why you don't like grand juries. Well, grand juries should never have been brought from Anglo law to the United States. They were part of the ecclesiastical dual system of jurisdictions in England. 
But the reason I protest so vigorously, they are secret. No defendant is allowed in. The defendant's lawyer is not allowed in. We have a constitutional right of what we call confrontation, you know, to be there to ask questions, to evaluate credibility by demeanor, to, you know, uh, uh, defend your client, et cetera, et cetera. But no. Grand juries don't allow anyone to be present. The grand juror is sworn to secrecy. And, you know, you get a transcript probably a month later. And the transcript obviously, you know, transcripts are, I always say, two-dimensional. Where the testimony, live testimony, when you hear it or participate in it, is three-dimensional. So uh, I say it's unconstitutional for lack of confrontation, for secrecy, for failure of discovery, and I think it should be abandoned. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. Tonight, I'm your host, Jeff Hayden, sitting with a great pleasure. I'm having the opportunity to spend an evening with the great J. Tony Sarah. Of course, our most important guest is all of you. Feel free to call in if you wish, if you have questions for Mr. Sarah, if you want to ask anything about what we're talking about, or you want to jump in about criminal law. Our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, it's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the Bay Area, call us toll free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. You don't have to join in the exact moment we're having. Don't have to join at this point in the conversation. You could ask us any of your questions. One of the things that you found very dangerous to the system is the use or the overuse of various types of informants. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, we have more classifications of informants, more law that pertain to informants than any other country in the world. The uh, There are, you know, percipient informants. There's participatory informants. There's informants who have been accused of crime and are working off the... Uh, uh, either the charge or the accusation by bringing in others uh, to be charged. They are skilled at uh, entrapment, although they avoid, you know, the ostensible forms of entrapment. And then the biggest thing and the reason why no judiciary should embrace informants is they lie, man. They're trying to save their own skin. And no one is there, you know, to be, uh, to oversee their honesty or their credibility. So uh, they will lie to get someone convicted. They will lie to get someone arrested. They are not reliable. They were unreliable per se. They pollute the system with their falsity. Their credibility is, you know, negative. 
Uh, any system that embraces informants is a system that is going to be ultimately unjust, unfair, and informant uh, 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 informant. What would I call it? Poisoned, poisoned. Can you give us an example of a case with a bad informant where? you came to realize what they said just wasn't so. Sure. I represented Blind Jerry. Uh, Jerry uh, was a uh, uh, a person, you know, who was completely blind. And we were friends. I, I may, uh, he, he lived up in the Santa Rosa area and I can remember sometimes I'd be in court and he could hear my voice and recognize me. And he, he would shout out. He was uninhibited. Tony, Sarah, are you in this courtroom? You know, it was like exciting. Well, he had a son who was blind. And it took an operation. And back then, the operation would have been $25,000, which, you know, isn't a lot nowadays. But it was a lot then. That was a long time ago. And so... uh they, uh, the informant goes to him and says, you know, uh, listen, I, uh, I have a way that uh, you can uh, make 25000 uh, All you have to do is, uh, you know, participate in this drug deal. And uh, he convinced him. That he says, no, man, that's not up my stick. You know, he, was, he didn't want to do it. But he said, the guy can well, keep thinking of your son, man. The same for you. This is for your son. So we got involved. And then when we went to court, it was, uh, you know, I blasted the informant, you know, and uh, the case was dismissed. So, you know, that that was a, a bad one. Uh, that informant uh, lied. Uh, that informant, you know, uh, brought uh, in... Uh, a great uh, reach in uh, public morality. That's one example. I had a similar case in a murder case where another attorney wanted his client to have discovery, that's the police reports, to work from and look through while in the jail. Yeah. And suddenly his cellmate described a confession he made. The thing that struck me right off the gate when I was watching the video of the informant statement. There was a mistake in the police report in the way they told the story. And by the second or third supplemental report, they acknowledged the mistake and corrected it. But of course, the informant didn't have access to the second or third supplement. They went off the original. So where this, the actuality of the events charged went to the right, the informant kept going straight. That's how we knew he was lying. Rare occasion with the jailhouse snitch. They often lie, but it's usually not that easily proven. Yes, and that's why we always tell our clients, you know, take your discovery, that means the police reports and transcripts, et cetera, uh, out of the cell with you wherever you go. Don't leave it there because what happens is someone goes in, reads a little bit of it, then has enough to convince uh, law enforcement probably doesn't take much that the the guy confessed 
and they know enough about the case by reading the discovery to make it sound like, uh, you know, it was real. It was like a real confession. Um, another thing we advise is don't have a roomie. You know, you want to sell by yourself so that no one can look at your, your material. Another thing is a lot of lawyers, they won't send it in. You know, they don't want the possibility that somebody else, especially law enforcement, is going to be looking at it. Um, example, uh, I recently had a case, uh, and uh, under some spurious, they were allegedly looking for nothing to do with my client, but uh, someone had a phone or something in, in the cell block, so they searched every room. But when they got to my guy's room... They took all of the discovery. So when he came back, they says, it's all gone. They took it all. And I have to believe that they turned it over to law enforcement. And, uh, you know, uh, they were privy, I guess, to uh, all of our confidential communications, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you, you've got to keep your eye, your third eye open all the time. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area, where we'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Let me turn it over for a moment to Sherry from Marin County. Sherry, welcome to Your Legal Rights. Sherry, if you're listening, please turn your radio down so that we can hear you and not hear ourselves okay. back. Thank you. Alexa, lower it. Okay. Sherry, you're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Oh, hi. I'm really enjoying the program. Thank you. Terry, um, Tony Sarah seems a very interesting man. And I was wondering how um, he could, if he is still acting as a pro bono lawyer. Uh, the, the answer is yes but not to the degree that I used to. Uh, I've become more selective. I like uh, cases that have uh, political content. I like cases where someone uh, really has been, how would I call it, mistreated legally, wrongfully charged, has civil rights, potentiality in terms of bringing action against government. So I'm far more selective than I used Mm -hmm. to be. I used to kind of estimate that three-fourths of all my caseload was pro bono, and now I can say maybe a third is pro bono. Okay. yeah, okay. this, this this case is related to a family member, and um, they've been in for 28 years. Um, and he was underage. Well, he was 20. That was not considered underage. But there are a lot of laws now that could help people that don't have 
the brain capacity of uh, under 25 to make proper decisions. So I was just wondering if you knew of a pro bono lawyer or you um, you can, if you would be interested in taking a case at all for um, um, a manslaughter and a, it's an LWAP, life without parole. And well, manslaughter is in an LWAP. LWAP is a is murder. special yeah. circumstance murder. Right. Uh, yeah. The way I do it is you have to contact the office. It goes you know, through secretary to paralegal and then up to me, and then I make a decision. So uh, it isn't a yes or no uh, situation. Well, I can contact your office. Um, that's not a problem. Okay. Uh, I like your program, and I'm enjoying listening to you. Thank you so much, sir. Sherry, thank you for joining us in your legal rights. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You mentioned, Tony, that you are more selective now about taking I don't know if it's just pro bono cases or taking cases in general, but no, just pro bono. You've had some other very interesting cases in recent years. You had a mother, as I recall, in Sonora that was charged with killing her uh, her child's molester. The Ellie Nestler case that, that was a major case, but also uh, I've had the uh, uh, shrimp boy. Uh, case, uh, which was uh, given a lot of publicity. It certainly was. That was a pro bono case for me. Uh, And uh, he should have been found not guilty. It was terrible what happened in his case. I hope that uh, he gets reversed. Uh, Another um, one that's popular is the case where um, the, the transvestite uh, uh, got killed and buried and uh, three people, allegedly young men, uh, had had an affair thinking she was a woman and when they found out she was a man uh, or at least had male whatever uh, parts, uh, they went berserk and, and they... Uh, they killed her and buried her. So it was a sad case, but that was, again, another pro bono case that I took uh, in recent past. I guess another pro bono one that I took was uh, just recently was, uh, we call it the Pighead case out of Santa Rosa, where um, a police officer who um, was uh, um, testifying on behalf of uh, police brutality I think a police uh, actually murder case uh, in favor of the police uh, was demonstrated uh, upon in the following fashion. Uh, People uh, during the night and midnight uh, had a severed head and uh, uh, buckets of uh, of pig blood and they went to his home and they threw the pig head out the door and then they, after that, uh, sprayed the whole area with blood. And then downtown, uh, there was a statue, uh, downtown Santa Rosa, not at his home, two things happening simultaneously. There was a statue of a bull, and on on the statute, uh, uh, there was uh, written, you know, uh, something 
uh, some like protect our First Amendment or something like that. And then uh, it was sprayed with blood. So they were charged with about four or five felonies. Uh, um, the uh, cleanup uh, exceeded certain costs. So that's why uh, they were felonies. I took that as a pro bono case. And that's a case that's still pending. But thankfully, after, um, I think it was before, just before prelim, um, I got a diversion. My client, uh, you know, uh, she, she, um, they couldn't get her to actually do anything. She was there and she was uh, yelling and screaming. Uh, but, you know, they, they actually, she didn't buy the pig head. She didn't throw the pig head, et cetera, et cetera. But another example, and that's why I'm being more selective, I guess. Uh, the case has to have some merit other than being a routine type case. And I don't do routine. There's things I don't do. I already said I don't take any kind of sex cases. I am a traveler. I don't do appellate cases. I don't do rich habeas corpus. I, you know, I don't do appeals. And uh, so many people call me, oh, they want an appeal, and I, I don't do appeals. We have people in our office who do it, then obviously I refer it to them. But um, uh, I still, you know, uh, desire uh, uh, to do cases uh, pro bono. The big one probably in everyone's imagination is the uh, the one uh, uh, the ghost ship fire that killed 35 people. And that was, you know, long, arduous, very stressful kind of case, multiple witnesses, victim uh, family who were irate and present to every session. And that was uh, a long trial. The ramifications of that case are still in the court. And uh, that was a pro bono case. So you, you can see the type of cases now that I'm doing pro bono. They're, they're kind of big cases with a lot of uh, political or other uh, type of uh, uh, significance. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden, and tonight my guest is the legendary J. Tony Serra. Feel free to call us, talk about any of your criminal law questions. You want to hear about the stories of various cases over the years. You want to talk about the things that have changed in criminal law. Our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, it's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866 866- 798-8255. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. Tonight, we're talking about criminal law. You could top jump in at any question you want. You don't have to join us where we are in our conversation. And one of the things that I've had a problem with, I wanted to see how you feel about it, but it seems that even for the last five, 10 years, as crime continues in most ways to drop, the pulse beat, the thump, thump, thump of constant crime on the news 
seems to be getting through to people and instilling fear and chipping away at reasonable doubt. Have you found that? Does it make it harder, do you think, to pick a jury, for example? No, it's absolutely true. But right alongside of that, the advent of gangs in the, I don't know, social economic structure, uh, uh, gangs that uh, I do inflict, uh, you know, injury and assault and battery and murder on others has increased. And that is part of the fear element. I have jurors who, you know, nowadays, their names never said. No one knows where they live. It's in a questionnaire, but no way do any of the defense witnesses or defendants, uh, they're not privy to that. So uh, they want to be anonymous. Juror number three, you know, and and you question them. Uh, Juror number eight, and you question them. Because they fear reprisal. They're afraid. Just what you said. Fear, you know, where fear dominates, justice disappears. They can't give reasonable doubt. They want to go anything the DA says. The DA, you know, is that bright line between their safety and their, you know, uh, uh, potential uh, uh, abuse. So they, the DA is their friend. The police are their friends. They're never going to say police did anything wrong because they need the police on their side because of fear. And there, it's the fear, you know, of everything. It's not just the idea that 9-11 occurred, you know, and we fear terrorism. We fear, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it, the people who are, are career criminals uh, in the sex area, uh, you know, in the robbery area, uh, in, and uh, we, we infer they're all out there listening to the case and, you know, reprisals are potential. So I agree completely with, you know, what uh, the tenor of your question was, uh, have things changed because of the fear element? And I'll say 100%. Defense lawyers are emissaries, you know, for evil. And the prosecution uh, represents, uh, you know, the good. And that's the way they see it because they're afraid to see it otherwise. Let me turn it to Cecile from Berkeley. You're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Um, is this, am I on the air? You're on the air. Welcome. Hi, I'd love to share um, a story with the wonderful gentleman that I'm listening to and really appreciating. Uh, My son is a very um, honorable person. He was protesting at a very prestigious college on behalf of his students when they were raising the tuitions at a UC Berkeley school. The police uh, were absolutely outrageous, and um, he was arrested for really nothing. They were 
doing a circle, just as happened at UC Davis, where they were sprayed with uh, that toxicity by police. And he was arrested and spent the night in jail. And my daughter-in-law had to get a lawyer for him. And I was just so stunned that they wouldn't do it pro bono for a professor, uh, an activist, and a wonderful human being. They, they said they would reduce the fee from $650 an hour to 450 And I thought it was so outrageous. And I, I just, I don't know, I want you to comment on that. I told the poet, Robert Haas, who also was arrested and also mistreated by the police on Berkeley campus, and his wife, Brenda Hillman. Um, and, and Bob Haas contributed to my son's fund. And he earned so little, had a very prestigious school, and I just wanted to share that story because it was so upsetting to me, you know, that um, they wouldn't do that pro bono. You know, he was obviously not a criminal. He had done nothing wrong. They broke his glasses and a camera that he had, and it was very traumatic. I wanted him to sue, but he said he didn't want to spend the next two years of his life doing that, you know? So I'd love your comments on that well, story. Well, my comment is it's sad that there are not many lawyers who specialize in pro bono cases, you know, Sadly, lawyers uh, are materialistic. Sadly, lawyers are greedy. Uh, sadly, lawyers are large, uh, loud. You know, under the bar rules, uh, charge you uh, in essence whenever they want if it's uh, mutually agreed upon. So, uh, uh, I'm sorry that you didn't contact one of those. I think. But I don't know, but I think that you can call the bar, the California bar, and say you need a referral on a uh, case uh, where uh, the person is indigent and can't afford a lawyer and the cause is, you know, true, or the police, you know, were uh, uh, involved in misconduct. So I think there is that avenue uh, of redress to get a pro bono lawyer. But uh, kind of here's an analogy. How many pro bono surgeons are there? A surgeon is some, there's some analogy between a surgeon, you know, goes in, whatever, does the operation, patients wheeled away, in comes another one, do the operation, you know, and uh, I have a hunch, makes a lot of money doing it. I've never heard that the surgeons do things pro bono. I know that sometimes hospitals have wards, you know, that, uh, like SF General, that serve pro bono people, but that's not a doctor taking a vow of poverty and, you know, performing uh, his skills uh, uh, pro bono. Uh, um, sadly, you know, we are a capitalistic uh, culture. Uh, money uh, is an object of capitalism. Uh, making as much money as fast as you can is the object of capitalism, uh, not uh, applying a moral index 
but applying a money index to whether or not you're going to render services is part of our system. So, um, yes, it's going to be difficult to get a pro bono lawyer. Best that every family member, you know, participate in paying a good lawyer uh, a reduced fee. Best you're going to get. Cecilia, thank for thank you for joining us on your legal rights. I'm sorry for your experience. What you'll find are a lot of lawyers that will reduce rates, but then they're not in a position to do it pro bono for somebody else because they're working at a lower rate. But I'm sorry for your experience, and thank you for joining us and sharing that with us. Let me turn it to Mark in San Francisco. Welcome to your legal rights. Hi, thank you. Uh, what an honor to be on the air with Tony. Um, uh, I'm, I'm inclined to want to mention quickly, based on what you just said, my daughter is in her second year of residency and uh, as, a, as a doctor, and she wants to work uh, with uh, indigent people on the streets. Uh, Hallelujah. Uh, hey, well, let me clap for that. That's beautiful. She's, I, don't think, I don't think she's going to work for nothing, but I don't really know what she's going to do. But that's what she wants to do. That's her passion. Um, I have a question for you that I've had for a long, long time. So let's say a defense attorney uh, has a client, and of course, uh, you know, confidentiality is, is top of the list of things or near the top uh, that you're uh, um, that you have to do. Um, let's say that you have a client, and, and you know that your client is is guilty of the crime, and then someone else uh, is in fact convicted of that crime who is not guilty of that crime and you know this um and they go off to prison the not guilty person what what do you do in that case what do you do uh that's an interesting thing that i've never confronted you're saying that an innocent person is convicted uh, and a guilty person uh it, um, was known to them and not charged, or what? The, the guilty person is your client, and um, and I, I've heard of the case of this kind. And, and the person who's not, you have reason to know that uh, someone else who is not guilty, in fact, of the crime, is has is convicted of it. Um, and See, uh, what I, yeah. I don't make judgments like that. How do I know the other guy did it? You know, if and if my client, uh, I don't tell my client what to say. You know, I go in and obviously I interview him. And if he says I'm innocent and, you know, this happened and that happened. And I said, well, is this a situation where you could testify to that? And he says, yes, that's his prerogative. I don't know if he's lying or not. Uh, suppose every lawyer who had a client in a criminal case uh, uh, had to give him some kind of a, uh, a, a, a truth serum, you know, or, or uh, submit him to a uh, uh, lie detector test uh, before he could represent him. Uh, we are not in a position of judgment. Lawyers are advocates. Lawyers are the ones who want to perfect your position, make your facts legally validated by the law, and, you know, warn the client when there's going to be pitfalls in terms of prosecution, cross-examination. We don't sit in judgment. 
If we sat in judgment, there may not be any goddamn criminal defense lawyers. They might think their clients are all guilty. I don't know. Too many defense lawyers have been ex-prosecutors, and they presume guilt. They never presume innocent, and they're not worth, you know, uh, the, the money they get for doing it. Our roles, Mark, are very prescribed by law. We're not allowed to to say certain things, give up certain confidences. And most of the time, we don't know the actual answers because we weren't there to see it. So with that in mind, in the right situation, if you absolutely have to, you can withdraw from a case, but you can't repeat things that are told you in confidence. You certainly can't take actions against the interest of your client on a case in which you're representing them because you've had a change of heart. All you can do in the best of circumstances is... Do your own job honestly and ethically. And in the worst of situations, if your ethics require it, you can get off the case and withdraw if the court allows you. We're not even allowed to walk away unless we're allowed to walk away. It's it's very complicated. You have to think in terms of duties that are prescribed so that the system works over the hundreds or thousands of times that you have cases in court every single day. And it may not be the result that would be the most favorable in one given case. Interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us in Your Legal Rights. Let me turn it to Ken from Kensington. Welcome to Your Legal Rights. Yes, uh, Tony, thank you for all your pro bono work. Uh, Tony, if if memory serves me, uh, after your stint in jail, you filed a a claim for for wages, or you you were filing a claim about the slave wages paid to prisoners. What's the status of that? Yes, well, let me first explain to the audience that I have been a lifelong tax protester. So I refuse to pay taxes. And since I have nothing, I own nothing, you know, uh, they can't uh, uh, take it, you know, uh, uh, in, in terms of seizing it. Uh, for taxes. So um, about every decade, uh, I am um, sued, uh, um, and and, and the bar, uh, you know, uh, sends me off uh, to Lompoc camp, where I uh, spend, the last time was 10 months, and um, uh, I come out, but I still don't pay taxes. And then they usually do it again. So I'm a tax resistor. I go to jail. While at jail, uh, I they didn't take my license. Uh, so I could represent people. So I uh, represented, you know, people. It was almost like uh, a dentist. I, I had them all lined up uh, and I'd be in the yard. I'd sit in a chair and I'd listen to each one and, okay, we'll do uh, a writ here. We'll do a you know, letter here, we'll uh, do uh, uh, this kind of a motion, blah, 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 blah. So uh, I helped exceedingly during my uh, time in jail. Uh, the uh, uh, Duties that I was given, see, everyone has to work at a camp. It's a camp. Uh, it's barracks. You know, it's not guards. You go in, they say, if you want to leave, 
uh, it, it, the, the penitentiary is right there looming over you. Uh, if you if you want to leave, don't run away. Just call a taxi. We will get 90% of you back and you'll be over there. And they point, you know, at the prison. So uh, while I uh, was there, uh, they were giving pay for work. And I'm forgetting, but it was something like 10 cents an hour, 5 cents an hour, something ridiculous. So uh, when I got out, I did a class action. You know, I got a lawyer, a friend of mine, and he represented me. We did a class action to get, you know, remuneration uh, pay, which was, uh, you know, something that was uh, uh, greater than what was given before. And uh, the, the and so I brought a, a, a class action on that issue uh, that it was, uh, you know, illegal, unconscionable uh, to uh, uh, pay so little. And uh, their answer was, published the the the, the uh, uh, judicial you know uh, uh, evaluation of the issue and their conclusion is a published opinion and it boils down to this mr Sarah working in the camp is voluntary <laughs> you're not entitled to anything they don't have to pay you anything you can Anytime you want, you can go back into the penitentiary and not work. So that was the end of that lawsuit, sadly. I thought it had merit. They scoffed at me for claiming that prisoners should be paid for their labor at a fair price. It was very Minimal wage, anyway, yeah. Well, thank you, Mr. Sarah. It was a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Thank you for joining us on Your Legal Rights. This is a conversation that I think you and I could have well into the night. You and I could talk about this stuff forever. But we are really we are running out of time, unfortunately. Um, do you have anything last anything for the last few seconds, anything you want to throw in? I throwing something in. I think that everyone in every fashion, should uh, get uh, politically uh, behind the elimination of grand jury, the elimination of uh, informant uh, testimony, the elimination of uh, 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 what they call mandatory sentencing, where it's not up to the court, you know, the legislature prescribes the sentencing, and most of all, rage against victimless crimes. You know, marijuana offenses uh, should be, uh, never have been outlawed. I think victimless crimes, they are like a little gambling and prostitution and, and uh, 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 drug offenses. They should be relegated to a different forum. They should be relegated to some kind of a social forum, not in the criminal courts. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM. Tonight, I've been joined by the legendary J. Tony Serra. A big thanks for joining us. 
Be sure to tune in next week when we talk about cryptocurrency, FTX, WTF. Our thanks to all of you for joining in, and to my guest, Tony Sarah, and at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden. Have a good night. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616.